So John 13, picking it up in verse 18, where we left off last week, it says this, I, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So this dialogue is continuing. There is Jesus has gathered his disciples in the upper room. It's Passover now. They've prepared their meal. They're gathering together for this intimate and celebratory occasion. And yet it is the occasion now that Jesus has come to this earth for to present himself as the Lamb of God. For in just a few hours now, Jesus is going to be arrested and he's going to be led to the cross and crucified where he's going to die for the sins of the world. But before this happens, Jesus gathers his disciples and he begins to minister to them. He begins to pour into them. This is kind of like the, the last hurrah now, in a sense, as he instructs them, as he shares his love with them. And so this is known as this upper room discourse that the gospel of John gives a lot of uh, of time to because for the next few chapters we're going to be seeing this dialogue unfolding here now in in this upper room and it's here that Jesus has just you know in the beginning of chapter 13 put on this incredible display uh, of love and servanthood as he's washed his disciples feet as he's given them this great example saying as I've done to you so you ought to do one to another right blessed are those of you that do these things. And so he's pouring in his disciples and instructing them. And it's here that he now begins to let them in on a little bit of a secret. That one who is among them is not really with them. There's a, a, a wolf in the pack. There's a, a betrayer among them. One that's going to turn on Jesus. And Jesus brings this up now to them to reveal to them that he is who he says he is. And that he is in full knowledge that, that he knows who are his. So Jesus reveals this to them. And, and that's why he says, I know whom I've chosen in verse 18. I know whom I've chosen. Jesus lets this, very, lets this be very clear. I know who are mine. Now, the question is, who are the chosen ones? Am I one of the chosen ones? Are you one of the chosen ones? Like, who's really the chosen ones? Well, the answer to that is those that do his will that live for him and obey his word. See, there's a lot of debate over, well, you know, I think I'm one of the chosen ones, but there's a lot of people that live without an assurance of knowing that for sure. They've been taught something different, perhaps, where, well, it's only the elect that are saved, and, and, and so God chooses, and if you're one of the chosen, well, we're not really sure, you know? And so people are living with this, this false kind of identity or hope that, well, I hope I'm one of the chosen, but, but Jesus has given that invitation to all whosoever will may come. And the fact is that if you have chosen Jesus, if you have put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and asked him to forgive you your sin, then guess what? You're one of the chosen. It's as simple as that. Jesus in his foreknowledge understands who's gonna choose him, but the invitation is given to all and there is that responsibility of man to put their trust in him. And so it's gonna demonstrate itself by those that follow him, that do his will, that obey his word. And so Jesus fills him in on all this to reveal a couple things. First of all, to show them that he is in control of all things, that he is God. And secondly, 
to show that this is fitting right in with God's perfect plans and it's fulfilling scripture. See, everything happens for a reason in God's economy and plan. And we may not always get it at the time. So you might have gone through something recently where something's hit you and it's like, why God? Why is this happening? Why is this, why are you allowing this to, to go on? And we may not understand it, but yet, as the Lord has shown, even in the midst of Judas betraying him, this is all fitting and perfect with God's plans. So too, when those things happen in our lives, we can question it, wonder why, but we have to understand that all things are unfolding according to God's perfect plan. And there will be times where he will shed some of that revelation and, and, and wisdom as to why. And sometimes it comes much later. But there might be another part of the puzzle that gets revealed where you suddenly go, oh, that's why you allowed this to happen. God, I didn't get it at the time. In fact, I didn't like it at the time. I questioned where you were. But now that I see what direction you're taking me and I see why you allowed that to happen and it fits in perfectly with how your plan is unfolding. So we've got to trust the Lord in these things. And that's what Jesus is seeking to reveal to his disciples. You know, I'm telling you this now so that you may know and that you might believe that I am he, as he says in verse 19. And so, like I said, it's revealing this is all tying into scripture. It's fulfilling scripture in a sense. And so Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9. And in Psalm 41, it's the story of David and his son Absalom that led a rebellion against David's rule. There was a revolt that took place. And then David's close friend and counselor, Ahithophel, joined in this rebellion led by David's son Absalom. And so David writes in Psalm 41 that even this one who I shared bread with, again, as Pete shared this morning, this, this great intimate dynamic that's at work in, in, in breaking bread together, sharing bread. David says, the one that I've shared bread with has is, is turned on me. Speaking of Ahithophel. So Jesus quotes his psalm to show just as what happened with David is happening with me. And sadly, just as what happened to Ahithophel is gonna happen to Judas. Because Ahithophel is going to eventually go and hang himself in remorse for what he's done, just as Judas is gonna do as well. So Jesus Let's them all know. I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you may know and that you may have confidence that all these things are fitting with God's perfect plan and that, and that um, it's fulfilling scripture so that there would never be any, any need for a crisis of faith on the point of the disciples to think about this down the road and go, what, what happened to you? Why did he turn on Judas? Did, did Judas have know something about Jesus that we don't know? Was there some kind of blind spot that we had about Jesus? Is, is he really who he says he was? Why did Judas turn on him? Was there a reason? No, Jesus says, I'm gonna tell you all this so that there won't be any crisis of faith. In fact, it's so that your faith may be strengthened as I reveal it to you now so that when it does happen, you'll see, oh man, Jesus shared this with us, that this was gonna happen. He says in verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So though there would be one, there'd be one act of disloyalty on the part of Judas, Judas encouraged the disciples to be those that would walk in loyalty, that would be, be loyal. And in fact, he says, listen, when you go out and you begin to carry out my work and you share the gospel, if they receive you, well, then they receive me. And on the flip side then, you could say, if they don't receive you, it's not on you, it's because of me. 
See, here's the great thing. And this is a real privilege that we have to go out and be ambassadors of Christ because that's what Jesus is calling the disciples to do. You're gonna go out and you're gonna, you're gonna share. They receive you, they've received me. And, and if they receive me, they receive the one who sent me. But here's the great thing is that that's a calling that we all have. 2 Corinthians 9 tells us that we're to be those ambassadors of Christ as we take the gospel, the good news to people. But here's the thing. Jesus is calling us simply to be faithful. Not to worry about the results or, or you know, the fruit of those things, but to simply be faithful. So many times we, we back away. We, we don't walk out and start to share the gospel because we're worried about, well, what are you going to think of me? What are they going to say about me? What if they don't receive what I'm sharing? Well, that's not on you. That's about Christ. They're, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus, as he says here. If they receive that, they receive you. On the flip side, don't get boasting in how great you've done a witnessing. That's just all in the Lord. It's his job. The results are his work. He's just called us to be faithful. So he's saying, listen, go out, share the good news. Be, be loyal in these things, but it's also a great honor and privilege we have to be used to Jesus in this way. Think about that. I mean, Jesus doesn't need us, but he decides to use us. I think that's the greatest thing, that not only did he save us, but that he chooses to use us and continue to work in us and through us. That's amazing. Because I, I, it, it means a whole lot more work for him, right? Trying to corral us and continue to use us, but he does, because that's where relationship is, is built and formed. So Jesus loves to partner with us and he's called us all in this wonderful role. But don't worry about all the what ifs and the, the how to's or the you know, results. Just be faithful. That's what he's calling disciples to do. Just be faithful. He'll take care of the, the rest. So in verse 21, we read, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now think about this. Though Jesus knew all along who was going to betray him, this didn't take him by surprise. He knew, and yet Jesus was troubled in spirit. And I, I, I like that. We just see this, this human side of Jesus, the emotion he struggled with. He, wasn't, he, he was fully man, but fully God. But being fully God didn't mean that he was exempt from you know, the, these feelings of, of emotion and struggle, right? He was troubled in spirit over this. He's not rejoicing in the fact that he's like, he's about to drop the bomb now and, and show Judas, I know exactly what you're gonna do. I knew all along, you can't fool anybody, Judas. And he's not, he's not rejoicing and exposing this. He's troubled in spirit. He's hurt over this. Not just because a close one is gonna turn on, turn on him, but because someone is playing with their very eternity. See, Jesus is saddened over the fact that Judas is going to choose his way over God's way and is going to choose death over life. Now, as Jesus announces this with the other disciples, nobody is sure who he's speaking of. Nobody's got a clue over this, right? Judas is not the obvious front runner, as some might think, that deep down in the back of the minds of the other disciples, they're all probably thinking, you know, oh yeah, of course it's Judas, you know. We suspected him, like we thought there was something off with this guy, you know. It's definitely, nobody's suspecting Judas. Nobody's thinking about him. It goes to show that sin can be very deceptive, right? We never really know what's going on in the heart of people. 
And we should be careful to take stock of our own hearts and lives too to, to ask, is there any area of sin or compromise in my own heart that I think I'm getting away with? Now, all the disciples are hearing this and they're all questioning themselves. It says in Matthew 26, verse 22, that all the disciples started to ask, is it I? Is it I? I mean, they just had no clue. They're wondering if they might have a part to play in this. And you see, we're as prone to sin and deception as the next person. But here's the thing. We gotta be careful that we're not giving sin or the devil a foothold in our lives. Because Judas had many opportunities along the way to repent. To confess and say, Jesus, man, my heart has been divided here. And I want to get right with you. I don't want to continue on in this path. He's had many opportunities to repent. In fact, Jesus has brought him into this upper room to break bread with him in this last supper. He's washed his feet. I mean, you would think conviction would be sitting in Judas saying, okay, Lord, I can't take it any longer. Your love is just killing me. I got to confess. But he's had this divide heart. He's holding on. He's not dealing with the sin. He's, in a sense, deceiving himself as well. He might think he's hiding this from everybody, but he's not hiding it from the one that matters most because Jesus knows. It's the same for us. We can't fool around with sin. We can't be deceived by sin because we might think we're fooling a lot of people around us, but we can never pull the wool over God's eyes. He knows all things. The, the very inner workings and workings of our heart and the thoughts of our minds, he knows the very core of us. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And so we need to be aware not to fool around with sin because we just don't get away with it. And Judas is a, a great example of that. But look at verse 23. Now there is one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now I love how John records here that he's the disciple whom he loved. He's kind of trying to, you know, squeeze it in there, put it in there in a way that he's not trying to draw attention to himself. But everybody knows, you know, when we read the disciple, John's talking about himself. John became known as the apostle of love. I think that's so wonderful because I don't, I don't believe this is John boasting or being prideful or, or trying to, you know, rub it in the disciples and say, I'm the one that Jesus really loves, you know. You guys, he kind of questioned, but I'm the one that he loves. He's not prideful or boasting or being arrogant in this. I think this is John now. Remember, John is writing this gospel much later in time than the other gospels. So here's John that's been living his life. And as he's been living his life in Jesus, he's becoming that much more familiar with the love of God. This is something that he began to experience and know personally and fully to where he could say confidently, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Not that he was the only one that Jesus loved or that he's the one that Jesus loved more than the disciples, but that he's the one simply loved by God. Just as you can say, as I can say, we are loved by God. And we should be able to confidently say that. I mean, I am, and put your name in there, fill in the blank, the one loved by Jesus. 
Do you know that love of God personally, experientially? Have you discovered that yourself to where you can say, man, I'm so grateful for the love of God because as John lived his life and just grew older, he just began to realize more and more that nothing can separate him from the love of God, that he is in Christ and Christ loves him. Such a wonderful truth to know. The theologian Karl Barth was asked, what is the most profound truth that he knew? He responded by repeating the familiar children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Of all the things that he knew theologically, that was the thing that stood out the most for him. I pray that we just have a, a real, true, genuine, personal understanding of the love of Jesus because it's wonderful. To where we can sit here confidently and say, yeah, I'm loved by the Lord. What a blessing that is. So John is sitting there. Remember, as we talked about this last week, the table that they were sitting at, not like Leonardo da Vinci's, you know, Last Supper, but this triclinium, this U-shaped table. And there's Jesus, the host, with John at his right. They're sitting on their, you know, they're, they're reclining at the table on their left elbow with their feet away from the table. They'd eat with their right hand. So there's John at the right side of Jesus. Jesus there in the host position and John just reclining on his breast. And there's Peter, most likely opposite John on the other side, most likely in the seat of the, the lowest position. We talked about that last week. We got some fun with that. And there's Peter motioning for John. John, Ask Jesus who it is. Who's he talking about? Who's going to betray him? Get that inside scoop for us, okay? And so John asked Jesus, and Jesus simply says, it's he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. Dipped the bread, gave it to Judas, who most likely was sitting on the left side of Jesus, that seat of the guest of honor. Again, here's Jesus with great grace and love giving Judas, opportunity to repent and to get right with him. Put him in that guest of honor spot. And he dips that bread in and he gives it to Judas. But even after Jesus did this, nobody had any clue that Judas was betrayed. Notice what we read next in verse 27. It says this, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. Now, as was the custom at the feast here, the host would take a piece of bread, dip it and give it to the guest of honor. That would kind of start the, the whole feast and, and the dinner. And so everybody sees this happening, but they're not thinking twice about it. They most likely haven't heard what Jesus said to John. But they're not thinking anything of it. They're just like, okay, dinner's beginning. This is great. Let's go. But yet Jesus speaks to Judas. Judas gets up and he goes. And everybody's wondering, what, what, what's going on? Why? Oh, I guess Judas is being sent on some mission, some errand, some ministry. He's the keeper of the money box. So surely he's going out to, to carry out some work of Jesus here. No big deal. They're not, they're not suspecting Judas. They have no idea what's, what's going on. Now, up until this time, and notice we read there in verse 27 that after the piece of bread, Satan entered into Judas. Now up until this time, Satan has certainly been at work tempting Judas, putting these things into his heart. 
But now as Judas goes from listening to this thought to entertaining that thought, to devising a plan, to now acting on this thought, Satan now enters him in a more complete way. I think we got to understand something here today that Satan has no control over you apart from what you allow him to have. Some people teach today that, oh, Satan or, or Christians can be possessed. No, that's false. I don't believe that one bit. If, if we're believers, we have the Holy Spirit residing in us. I think the Holy Spirit is going to share that space with Satan or a demon? Of course not. I don't believe Christians can be possessed. But here's Judas showing that he's not allowing himself to follow the Lord or, or to be a participant in the Lord's things. He has gone from being tempted to entertain that thought to now acting upon that thought. In other words, he's been giving Satan more and more room in his life to the point where now Judas is now possessed, it would seem, by Satan. But he has no control over you apart from what you give him. And Judas has given him far too much control. And Satan is sly, he's crafty. That's why we have to be careful that we're not giving the enemy any room, any foothold, that we're not entertaining temptation or, or any thoughts that Satan is looking to kind of feed you. We need to take every thought captive, the Bible says, and bring it to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Don't allow the enemy to creep in in subtle ways. We need to be on guard. Because Satan's only aim is to lead you away from the Lord, to keep you far from God and, and to eventually just bring destruction. That's all Satan is able to do. Notice what we read there in verse 30 because it's a very fitting picture of what's going on. As Judas leaves, Satan enters him. He walks out and it was what? Verse 30, night. Judas leaves Jesus and he walks out into the darkness. It's exactly what's going on spiritually here. That's always the result of those who walk away from Jesus. Something today, well, no, I've, I've chosen my own path. I've been enlightened. I've got some kind of greater truth or reality. But the end result is the same for people that turn away from Jesus. It will end in dark days. It will end in you not being exposed to greater light, but being exposed to greater darkness. Walking away from Jesus will do just that. Maybe the light in your own life has diminished a bit in, in, in your life. Look to see if maybe you've drifted from Jesus. Have you gotten away from the Lord? There's not a lot you have to do to reflect light other than be near the light. And Jesus is the light of the world. Draw close to him. Abide in him. And as you do, you're going to be walking in the light and not in darkness. Stay close to Jesus and you don't have to worry about being in the dark. Well, verse 31, so when he'd gone out, Jesus says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. To which everybody said, say what? What are we reading there? That's a lot of glorified uh, words there, right? But you see, Jesus is simply saying, this doesn't change anything. This doesn't alter anything. In fact, sometimes when we see things that are a threat to the work of the Lord, those are opportunities for God to be glorified all the more. 
That's amazing to me. I love that. When you see opposition come into your life, perhaps that's an opportunity for Jesus to be glorified all the more in and through you. Isn't that a wonderful reality? Jesus is now the son of man is glorified. And what he's pointing to and looking towards is that now is the time where the events are gonna unfold for him to be arrested, put on false trial, and then taken to the cross to be crucified. But the cross would not result in humiliation or shame. It would result in the glorification of Jesus Christ, the glory of God. God is glorifying himself in and through the Son, and when the Son is glorified, then God is glorified. When we seek to glorify Jesus, God is glorified, and, 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 and Jesus can be glorified in a number of ways, through a number of means. Here it'd be through something you'd think, no way, this will be the shame of Jesus. This, this can't result in the glory, but yet the cross brought greater glory to Jesus. So Jesus is allowing this to happen, showing that nothing can thwart these things from happening, from, from Jesus being glorified and God being glorified through him. Then verse 33, Jesus says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, which he did say back in, in John chapter seven and, and John chapter eight, where he told the Jews, you know, I'm going away and where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, he says to these disciples now, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So Jesus takes his time to announce to his disciples of his coming departure. And they can't come at this time because Jesus is gonna die and be placed in a tomb. But it's all temporary because the work that Jesus is doing is to ultimately reconcile all those that believe in him to him. So he says, you can't come right now, but it's temporary because what I'm ultimately doing is so that I can secure you to be with me for all of eternity. In fact, to start the next chapter, in chapter 14, we're gonna hear some wonderful truths on this matter when Jesus will say, hey, don't, don't be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. We'll get to that soon here. But he says to them there in verse 33, my little children, isn't that great? Little children. Now that's not something that Jesus is using as a slight, like you bunch of immature brats, would you just listen to me for a change? This isn't Jesus using that term, little children. In fact, this is a term of endearment and it's the first time that Jesus uses this term of his disciples. And notice, it's only 11 now. Judas is gone. This is a term that's reserved for those that are truly his that are with them and in him. And so he speaks to them with this tenderness here, this term of endearment, little children, my dear ones. This is what he's saying to them. And notice what he, he's getting their attention for because he's dropping something huge on them right now. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as Jesus gets ready to, to leave his disciples for a period of time, he looks to instill some valuable truths and lessons to them, some instructions. So he gives them a new commandment. Now this is a bit interesting because those of you that know your word here, this isn't anything new. In fact, this is something that they've heard from times past. 
In fact, going all the way back to Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 18. says, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this has been an instruction already. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why is this a new commandment now? Well, the word new does not mean new in time, but it means new in experience. It's something that's fresh now. It's the opposite of that which is worn out. See, love would take on a new meaning and power because of the work that Jesus will do, because of the example that Jesus gives now. You see, Jesus has been demonstrating to his disciples that, uh, of what this love looks like. What has he done so far? Well, he's gone and he's washed their feet. He's taken his place of a, a servant. He's about to lay his life down for their good. So he says, love one another, but more so love like I have loved you. This is what's new about this. Because Jesus has demonstrated and revealed and shown a, a, a greater love. In fact, John 15, 13 says, greater love has known this that he laid down his life for his friends. Greater love. This is what Jesus is seeking to demonstrate and show and teach his disciples. I want you now not just to love your neighbor, but to love yourself or, or to love your neighbor, not just as yourself, but to love as I have loved you. Sorry. See, there's a lot of people that teach to love your neighbor as yourself. They will say, so you got to learn how to love yourself. You got to focus on self. You got to make sure that you're happy with self and able to love yourself so that you can love your neighbor that way. But Jesus, no, wait a second. That's not what I'm saying. Just get your, get your focus off of self. See, the, the way that Jesus loved is sacrificially, unconditionally. It's not based on what you're getting out of that relationship. It's based on what you can give to that relationship. It's not based on, on a person being lovable. It's upon simply showing love for them just as Jesus would do for Judas who was very, you would say, unlovable. Jesus knowing he's going to betray me yet Jesus washed his feet. Love one another as I have loved you. Sacrificially, unconditionally. That's what Jesus is demonstrating here. Love like he did where it was full of, of grace and gentleness and compassion without prejudice. Love one another that way. And you see, this is a new way also because they would now have the Holy Spirit to empower them to live out this love. This love was new in that it was superior to the old. Before, they were told to love their neighbors, but Jesus says, love your enemies. Think about that. This was taking love to a whole nother level. But it was a level that Jesus has already shown them, revealed to them demonstrated to them. So love one another just as I have loved you. It's been well said that the law of love to others is now explained with new clarity. It's enforced by new motives and obligations, illustrated by a new example and obeyed in a new way. And you see what Jesus says there in verse 35 is that this is the way that the world is gonna know that you're my disciples. The world doesn't go, oh, you must be Christian because you're a good person or because you do charitable acts or because you go to church. Those things don't stand out in and among themselves because there's a lot of non-Christians that do those same things. But Jesus says, the world is gonna know that you're true followers of me in how you love one another. In how you love one another. 
Think about this crew that's with Jesus, this motley crew. I mean, these guys, I'm sure, had a hard time loving one another because there were a lot of different personalities in that group. There were people that didn't get along that I'm sure they wanted to just, you know, take each other out. Jesus says, I want you to love one another. Even when you don't agree with each other, even when you're different than one another, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. You know, same goes for in this place. We have a lot of different people there, different personalities, different interests. Jesus isn't saying, go and love those people that are similar to you or that you really relate to personality-wise. Go and lo- No, he says, love one another, period. Love one another. Because the love that Jesus showed isn't conditioned upon anything. It's not biased. It's sacrificial, it's giving. Love one another that way. That's how people are gonna know that you're disciples, that you're followers of Jesus. Because this is a love that the world doesn't really know or understand. Because the world is oftentimes, I'm gonna love if I can get something in return. I'm gonna do this if it helps me, if it serves me, then I'll do this. The world doesn't oftentimes get to see this kind of love. But when they do, they're gonna go, that's an out-of-this-world kind of love. What's going on with that? Why are you like this? Because I'm a follower of Jesus and because he's loved me this way. And I wanna love others that way. We get to demonstrate we're followers of Jesus in that. That's what Jesus desires. That's what I pray for all of us here. Now, to finish up this chapter, we wrap up with Peter. Peter, who seems to still be stuck back on verse 33, he seems like he's just kind of tuned out this whole discussion on love. I mean, he's about to chop off a guy's ear in a few hours. This guy seems to have missed completely this whole love thing. He's completely stuck on verse 33 because notice what he asked in verse 36. Peter Simon said to him, Lord, where are you going? Remember that's what Jesus said in verse 33. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And Peter's thinking, what? What do you mean I can't come? Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. Now, Peter always gets a bad rap, right? But I tell you, and you've heard me say this recently, I think I relate most to Peter than anyone. Yeah, he, he struggled. I mean, he made mistakes, but I love the heart and the passion of Peter. Because what is Peter saying right now? Jesus, where are you going? Are you going on a little journey? Are you going on a mission? Yes, I'm gonna do. I wanna go. See, Peter's heart is where you are, Jesus, I wanna be. That's a good thing. I wanna go with you, Jesus. I wanna be with you. That should be our prayer, our heart, our desire. Lord, wherever you are, that's where I wanna be. I don't wanna get off track from where you are. But Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is ultimately doing and saying because Jesus is speaking about his death. But, but Jesus begins to give a little bit of a veiled reference now to what's coming Peter's way. Because he says, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterward. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you will walk in these steps. You will follow me. Because tradition tells us that Peter also will eventually be crucified for his faith. But Peter, full of boldness now, didn't want to be crucified 
or die the same death that Jesus died. He felt too unworthy to even die the death that Jesus died, so he asked to be crucified upside down. But he had suffered martyrdom for his faith. And so Jesus says, you will follow me afterward. But for right now, Peter, you need to learn a couple things here. You need to learn not to be relying on your own strength, your own flesh. Because right now, Peter's full of boldness. I want to go with you. I will be ready to die for you. But that being spoken in his own self-confidence, he's going to be hit with the reality that when push comes to shove, when his feet are brought close to the fire, he's going to run. The Lord says, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me. What changed for Peter where he's willing to say, oh, I'm ready to face the cross, but I'm not going to face it the way Jesus did. I'm not going to die the same death Jesus died. Crucify me upside down. Full of boldness, ready to do that. What changed? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that was poured out on Pentecost changed these men. But Peter had to learn, I can't be relying on self, on my strength. As too for us. We gotta be careful that we're not, we're not serving the Lord. We're not doing this work in our own ability, in our own strengths, through our own flesh. The Bible says in Zechariah 4, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We're gonna fail every time if we're trying to operate in and through our own strength and flesh. How we need the Holy Spirit to fill us, to guide us, to strengthen us. To do that work that Jesus says, new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. We need the Holy Spirit just to do that. How we need to learn these truths. This passage we looked at today begins and ends with two people that would deny Jesus. But they both had very opposite endings. Judas would end up hanging himself, unwilling to repent. Peter would instead look to the one who hung on a cross for him in his place and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offered where he could continue to walk in newness of life in and through Jesus and be used greatly of Jesus. It's the, the dividing point for all of us. Are you getting hung up on your own mistakes, shortcomings? Trapped in sin, unwilling to repent? Or are you willing to look to the one that hung on a cross for you, to forgive you, to make you new, to cleanse you, forgive you, and give you life in and through him? Peter went on to enjoy incredible life. Judas ended his life short, not repenting. Where do you stand today? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you repented of your sin, which simply means I'm gonna turn from my way and my thinking and I'm gonna turn to God and go his way. I wanna receive his forgiveness of sin. I wanna receive the life he has for me. And it's a good life. It's a great life. It's free of charges by his grace. He died in your place so that you wouldn't have to experience that death. He died so that you could have life. Have you received that today? I pray that you have. If you haven't, all you need to do is say, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. Forgive me and come and be my Lord and my Savior. I put my trust in you now as my Savior. And as you do that, you become a child of God, plain and simple. Don't leave here today without knowing that assurance of salvation that's given by faith in him.
Let's stand together. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come and we're gonna just close with a song and just opportunity to go before the Lord and maybe there's some things that you need to get right with the Lord that he's been speaking to your heart over here today. And I'm gonna ask our prayer teams to come and make themselves available in the front here and just to pray to you. If you just need prayer, maybe there's some things here that the word has touched on that you just are asking somebody to come and help with and pray over your life or maybe it's a need that you have you need prayer for just come and see these people and just let this be a time of ministry just waiting on the Lord here today so Lord we thank you for this time to just wait on you to learn of you and to grow in you and thank you for Lord life in you that you've done the work for us you died in our place that we might have life in you may we continue to walk in that life may we continue to to show that we are in you by our obedience by carrying out your word, by loving as you have loved, Lord. Just continue to, to grow that in us and use us, Lord, for all that you have. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.